So I know some of you are wondering, why am I back again? Uh, <clears throat> you, do you ever know anyone, or maybe you're one of those people that you love to start projects, but you can't finish them? You know, you can't quite... Well, that's what happened to us last week. I just couldn't quite finish. So uh, Pastor Drew said, no problem. We just do part two. I said, okay. And he said, but you got to stop at four. No more than four. So I'm thinking, okay, is, maybe there's some theological reason for that. And his reason was, you can't go past four, he says, because Rocky Five was really bad. So... <laughs> So we'll see if we can uh, wrap, wrap it up tonight. Let's turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 4. And we are still in verses 14 through 30. Now, continuing from last week, um, this is a very critical portion of Scripture. And the reason is because it's so foundational, not only to the understanding and the foundation that it's laying for the rest of the book of Luke, but all the Gospels. So our text divides itself, our outline from last time, is three sections. The settings, the message, and the reaction. Now the Old Testament anticipates the coming of the Messiah, and all the Jews knew that, and they were waiting and waiting for centuries. They were waiting for the Messiah to arrive. Now as we saw last time, the Galilean ministry of Jesus is defined for us in verses 14 and 15. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news spread about him throughout all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So the nature of his ministry was teaching, and the place was in the synagogues. And that all begins in verses 16 as he launches that ministry. Uh, please follow along verses 16 through 19. And he, the Lord, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recover the sight of the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, his sermon was from Isaiah 61, the first two verses. He read the scripture, and then he explains the scripture. Jesus is essentially saying to them, the promised Messiah is here. Salvation has arrived. It's no longer future. It's no longer something you're looking forward to. I am your Savior. I am the Messiah, and I am the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. We went through that last time, but we left out the message in verse 18. So let's look at that tonight. So when the Messiah comes, what is it that he will do? Well, his ministry is described here as the work of salvation. And Jesus uses four metaphors to describe his work. 
the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. These are pictures of sinners in the desperate condition of their need. So when you think about the unconverted in the world, um, they may on the surface be rich, unlimited freedom, no physical issues whatsoever, let alone blindness. They may appear to be on top of the world. But the fact is, any sinner falls into these categories. Apart from the salvation that Christ brings, this describes us all. This is our condition, and until we come to understand that, there will be no desire to find a solution. And so the point that Jesus is saying here, as he opens the meaning of Isaiah 61, that is his point that he's saying. So let's look at these. Let's take them one at a time. In verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is identifying him as the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. So the first purpose is to preach the gospel to the poor. Let's take a look at the poor. The good news is not that poor people are going to get rich. Right? It's not economic prosperity. We're talking about spiritual riches here. The good news is people who are spiritually poor can be released from poverty. <clears throat> now, when we think of the word poor, it means somebody who has very little. For example, the widow in Luke 21, too. She just had a few pennies, barely making ends meet. She was poor, very little. But the word that Jesus uses here is not that word at all. He uses the word he uses for poor means to cringe, to shrink back, or to cower. It refers to a beggar, someone who cringes in the shadows. It refers to a person that's in total destitution. The image was one that, that the hand went out to beg, and the other hand went to cover their face because they were so ashamed in this hopeless destitution. The point is utter and total bankruptcy of all resources. Like in Luke 16, there was a beggar named Lazarus. He was begging for crumbs, anything that he could eat. So the Messiah will come and bring good news to the people who recognize that they have nothing to commend themselves. It's a Sermon on the Mound. Blessed are the poor in what? Spirit. Every sinner, in the words of Isaiah, could count his righteousness as filthy rags. And of course, this goes contrary to Jewish mentality. They thought by their good works and keeping the ceremonial law, obeying the Mosaic system, they could earn salvation. But Jesus came and shatters that entire view, and he says, only the only people the Messiah can save and bring to salvation, who are the ones that recognize their spiritual destitution? As long as I think I'm a good person or that my morality or my religion counts for something, we have a hopeless situation. <clears throat> the poor are those who, on the other hand, recognize their spiritual destitution and are unable to recover without help. They're like the people in Psalms 107. They have to realize that they are wandering in a desert, they have no food, they have no water, and nowhere to find it. They can only cry out to God for mercy. They're like the publican in Luke 18. 
He's beating on his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he falls down, and he won't even look up. He said, it says he won't even look up towards heaven because he's cringing and cowering in spiritual destitution. And that image is similar in Revelation 3.17. And this is a very sad commentary because this is the Lord talking to one of his churches. He says, because you say I am rich and I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the picture of a poor person. The second one is of prisoners. In verse 18, it says, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And that has the idea of forgiveness. The reason somebody is in prison, think about it, is because somebody else has put them there. He's talking about punishment and people who are spiritually prisoners are and in spiritual bondage. The wind just came up. So they're in spiritual bondage because of their guilt and the penalty of a debt, a debt they cannot pay. Captives, it means, it can mean also prisoners of war. They're waiting for their own execution. This is how Jesus sees a sinner. Now, I used to think, why in the world would anybody want to be a Christian and put themselves in such bondage, such restriction? The Bible is just one book, and you have all these rules, right? But I think most people today think they're free. Um, they do whatever they want. But the Bible would define them as prisoners. Sin has indebted them to God, a debt that they cannot pay. Now, Satan, according to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, holds them in bondage their whole life by the fear of death. They are the children of wrath, Ephesians 2 says. They are under the power and the authority of Satan. So there's a sense when the, that they are captives to sin, and they're captives of Satan. But the real judge over them is God himself. So the sinner is a prisoner of Satan, a prisoner of sin. But more than that, he's a prisoner of God who holds us accountable. In Psalm 79 it says, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are doomed to die. That is strong language. But Isaiah 42, 7 says, I have, I'll have the Messiah open the blind eyes and bring prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in the darkness from the prison. See, forgiveness is what sets a prisoner free. And then thirdly, blind the blind and recovery to the sight of the blind is what the Messiah is bringing not the physically blind but we do see Jesus healing blind people as we um, progress through Luke's gospel but he's talking here from Isaiah 61 1 about those who are in spiritual darkness and there's a picture throughout the Bible of spiritual darkness and spiritual blindness the sinner is not only without spiritual resources and therefore poor, he's not only guilty of sin and a prisoner, but he's also blind the fact that he cannot see or understand the truth. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul tells us, 
The natural man understands not the things of God. He can't know them. He can't understand them because they're foolishness to him. So naturally, just by being a fallen sinner, the sinner is blind. And then judicially, another category of blindness. He's also blind because God has blinded him. John 12, 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So number one, the natural man is blind to start with. And two, God compounds this blindness by sentencing him to blindness for punishment of his sins. Isaiah 29.10, The Lord has poured out on you the spirit of a deep sleep and has closed your eyes. And then number three, man is further blinded by Satan. He's blinded naturally, judicially, and satanically. 2 Corinthians 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled by those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. So we're talking about total blindness. Blind naturally, blind further by God, and further by Satan to those that don't believe. So verse 18 tells us what the Messiah is coming to do, to give sight to the blind. Remember, Jesus told us he was the light of the world. So the Messiah has come to those that are spiritually bankrupt and know it, to those that are imprisoned and know it, and those who are blind spiritually and know it. Know it. And finally, he comes to those that are the downtrodden or the oppressed. Now, oppression here is the idea of someone overwhelmed by the pain of life, overwhelmed by life's troubles and whatever they can bring. And that certainly is an endless list of those things. This is the person Jesus was talking to when he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. This is the person that is overburdened. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. The Pharisees put heavy burdens on the people. All kinds of laws they were crushed under, trying to keep the laws of God also that they could not keep. Jesus is saying the Messiah will come, the whole burden of sin and trying to keep the law, he says, I'm going to take that off for you and give you rest. And 1 John 5, 3 reminds us, this is the love of God that his commandments, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, he tells us, are not a burden. So those that are spiritually bankrupt, those who are imprisoned by their own sin, who are blind to truth, those who are oppressed, by the burdens of sin and the issues of life, the Messiah comes to deliver them. This is why it is the favorable year of the Lord. And for us, it continues to be the favorable year of the Lord forever. So let's follow the story, verse 22 through 30. And all were speaking well of him, 
and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage, and they, as they heard these things, they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill, which the city had been built, in order to throw him down the cliff, but passing through their midst, he went his way. Now we're in shock, aren't we? We haven't seen anything negative in the, all these months that we've been studying Luke in the first four chapters. Everything, everything's been so positive. What's happening here? What went wrong? Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and then he explained it. Verse 21, today the scripture has been fulfilled that I am the Messiah and salvation is available. Many times the preacher stood up in the synagogue and he said, the Messiah will come someday, but never present. But now Jesus is saying, it is present. What a day. No Sabbath ever began so wonderfully, and no Sabbath ever ended so tragically. How could this have happened? How did it turn so badly? Well, look at verse 22. At first his words landed well. All were speaking well of him. Now that doesn't mean they believed him as the Messiah, but it just means that the buzz was positive. They were very eager for the Messiah's coming. They had just heard the greatest preacher that had ever preached, the greatest speaker that had ever spoken, and they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? He had communicated the message unlike anybody had ever. So they were amazed by this. And they, you know, isn't this Joe's kid? I mean, we know the mom. We know his whole family. This can't be the Messiah. Growing up, he didn't do any miracles. He never claimed to be the Messiah. They just couldn't get it. But they understood exactly what he said and exactly what he meant. And what was his message to them? Salvation is available for the poor, prisoners, blind, and the oppressed. And they're the only ones that will be saved. They got that message. If they wanted salvation, they had to confess their spiritual condition. And they were not about to do that. Are you kidding me? This is the last thing they were about to do. You know who they were? They were righteous. They were noble. They worshiped the true and living God. They gave tithes. They went to the synagogue. I mean, they fasted. These were the people of God. They certainly were not the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. That's got to be somebody else. That's the Gentiles. And so in self-defense, they begin to think, well, the problem's not with us. We can't just buy this message. How do we know that he really is the Messiah? So they just put up a wall. And then in verse 23, 
He says, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So he starts to read their minds. He says, I know what you're thinking. He said, you're saying we don't have any proof. We don't know we should believe in you. If you're the physician, then heal yourself. Don't come and tell us you're the doctor if you don't have any proof. The words of salvation were offered to them, but they were not willing to admit that they were the poor prisoners, blind and the oppressed. No such confession is going to come out of their hardened hearts, filled with pride and self-righteousness. And you know what? It was never a question of miracles, because miracles don't prove anything about that. I mean, if Jesus is a miracle, does that mean he could save sinners and keep people from hell? No. And that wasn't the real issue with these people anyway, because they don't even question that Jesus can do miracles. All they want him to do is do what he did in Capernaum, 20 miles away. Never do Jewish people or Jewish leadership ever question Jesus' miracles. In John 11:47, the Pharisees, the chief priests, said, this man is doing miracles. So this is not an honest question. They're not questioning him that he did them. They're just saying, do them here. They did not like his message. So Jesus says, I know exactly what you're saying. You're saying, physician, heal yourself. Prove your claims. It's your fault, Jesus, if we don't believe you. You just haven't given us enough, enough proof. We need more evidence. Do you know that Jesus banished disease from nearly all of Israel, and they still hung him on a cross? In verse 24, he says, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown all experts are from out of town, right? It's that familiarity breeds contempt deal. But at this point, Jesus makes a brilliant transition. Let's listen. Take a water break. Verse 25. This is how Jesus responds. He says, speaking of unwelcome prophets, let me talk to you about Elijah. Verse 27, he says, let me talk to you about Elisha. Two prophets Israel hated, reject, and they were rejected by the people. So speaking of unwelcome prophets, let me talk to you about Elijah and Elisha. Ouch, this can't be good. Let's see what he says, verse 25. I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now they all knew who Elijah was, the great prophet. And in the days of Elijah, there were not only many widows, there was Baal worship everywhere. Because the king was named Ahab. You remember him. Now Ahab had married a lovely woman named Jezebel. Now Ahab was so bad, it says in 1 Kings, he did more to anger God than any other kings before him. What a claim to fame that is. How would you like to have that reputation? So Elijah comes on the scene, and the first thing he does is he announces no rain for three and a half years. And the result, verse 25, when a great famine came over all the land, 
So you've got a lot of widows in the land, and now we know God cares about widows because all through the Old Testament, there's special provision for widows. And the widows are the people that are at the bottom of the food chain. They suffer the worst. So that's the situation here. Now it says in verse 26, Elijah was sent to none of them. You know, the Jews don't like this story, I can tell you. And as Jesus starts to tell it, they're getting angry. Why are you bringing up this ugly story? People were dying and God didn't do anything about it. They don't like this story at all. They were familiar, believe me, with 1 Kings 17. And if you think that was bad, Elijah was sent to none of the Jewish widows. He was sent where? To Sidon, to a woman who was a widow there. Now this is worse. Why? This woman, hang on, is a Gentile. Bad enough to be a woman in that culture in, in the Jewish times back then. But it's far worse to be a Gentile woman. How could God ignore the Jews of Israel? So God sends Elijah in the middle of all this famine over to this widow. Now it tells us that this widow was a believer. She believed in the true God. So she's a Gentile in the midst of a pagan land, but she believes in the true God. Now her food supply is almost gone, it tells us. And then Elijah comes to her and he says, could you get me some water? And then when she's going to get the water, he says, uh, could you take whatever food you have left and make me a meal? What? Here's a stranger. This guy walks into her house. He's never met this guy in her entire life. And he says, take what you got, just that little bit you got left, and make me a meal. Well, I'm the man from God. Give me a meal that you would need to live one more day. She's going to starve to death, and he says, make me a meal. Now, if she had been back in Nazareth in that synagogue, what, God, what would she have said? Well, how do I know you're a man of God? How do I know I can trust you? Please do some magic. Do some tricks so I can believe. But that wouldn't have proven anything. The only way that she would ever know that he was from God and that God could supply all that she would ever need was take that little bit that she had and trust it to him. She probably thought like this. Well, uh, I only have one little cup left. A little bit of oil. That's all I've got. If, if he is a man of God and I give it to him, then I'll have life. And if he's not, I'll die one day sooner. So what have I got to lose? Pretty good thinking. Right? She was destitute, desperate. She had nowhere to turn. So if she doesn't trust God, she's dead anyway. It was Corey Ten Boom that said that you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So the only way she would ever know that the God of Israel would give her all she would ever need is if she took what she had in her poverty and trusted him with it. And she did. And you remember the story. She made a little cake and the prophet ate it. And then her food supply never, ever ran out. It just kept getting filled and filled. And so what Jesus was saying to those in the synagogue, you may be Jews, you may be part of Israel, you may be part of the covenant, but I will tell you this. God will save an outcast Gentile woman who admits her destitution before he'll save you. 
She knew her condition, and she would only know if she trusted God. You know how those in the synagogue that day could have known that if Jesus was the Messiah? Very simple. Admit their sin and ask, them to, ask Jesus to save them. That's the issue, but they wouldn't do it. Now, Jesus is not finished. They didn't like this story at all, and they're getting angrier by the moment. They don't like these stories. So Jesus talks to them about another prophet. Verse 27, there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. It was in the time of Elisha, and the people were still worshiping Baal. Oh, man, did they hate this story. So what's wrong with Naaman? Well, he commanded a set of troops that were always raiding and terrorizing Israel. He would take people captives and, and drag them back to, uh, to Syria. So he was a Gentile, and worse than that, he had leprosy. He was despicable on every count. And one of his captives became a servant in his house, and, he, and she told him, you need to go find the man of God, Elisha, because he could heal you. And so what happened? He began to believe in the power of God, and eventually he wound up meeting Elisha. And Elijah said to him, the God of Israel is willing to heal you. All you have to do is go over to that river and dunk yourself in it seven times. Well, Naaman was furious. He was a man of honor. He was a man of nobility. He was a general. I'm not going to humble myself in some humiliating deal like that in that dirty river. Finally, in his desperation, he realizes there's no cure. There's the that's the main point. Finally, in his desperation, there is no cure. There's nothing except the God of Israel. Is he really the true God? How will I ever know? Well, he goes over there and dunks himself in the dirty river, and guess what? Clean. Oh, boy, you're sitting in the synagogue, and you're saying, this is not going well. So we're worse than a Gentile widow from Jezebel's hometown, and now we're worse than a Syrian Gentile leper? Let's look at the reaction. Verse 28. And all the synagogue was filled with rage as they heard these things. There's nothing worse than spiritual pride, is there? The Lord said, I came to save, but I can only save the poor, the prisoners, the blind, and the oppressed. And it doesn't matter who it is. It just matters that we see our true condition. It's like the man that said, Lord, I believe. Just help my unbelief. So they're so angry with him because he's pushing the fact that unless they admit that their spiritual condition is no better than outcasts, they aren't going to get saved. And this is intolerable to them. Lifelong attender of the synagogue member in good standing, a devout Jew, and for him to say they're no better off than a pagan, than an outcast, that's unthinkable. So in verse 29, he says, And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were so rooted in self-righteousness, so unwilling to see their sin, 
that the Messiah that they had been waiting for for centuries finally came. They tried to kill him because he threatened their self-righteousness. Have you ever known somebody? I, I remember thinking I had a, a good friend that was Jewish. And I learned a lot from this man about the Bible and Jewish customs. And people had, would ask me, and I'm sure people have asked you, why is it that somebody that knows the truth about Jesus, why is it that somebody that knows the gospel still rejects Jesus? There's only one reason why people reject the truth of Jesus when they know it is because they don't see themselves as the poor, the prisoners, blind or oppressed. Because you, and that's always a problem, and you can't get saved if you don't. God offers nothing to people that are content with their own condition except judgment. There's only one way to know if Jesus can save you and change your life, and that's take your life and hand it over to him and see what he does with it. And they hated that message so much because they would not humble themselves. Verse 30, instant calm. But passing through their midst, he went his way. We don't know how that happened. Some miraculous way, he was just gone. If they wanted proof, all they needed to do was ask him to save them from their sins. But they would not. How about you? Those are the only people that he can save. Let's pray. Father, this is such a, such a powerful statement of the mission of the Messiah. To save sinners, Lord, we thank you that the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has come to rescue us forever from our spiritual poverty from our spiritual prison, from our spiritual blindness and oppression. Lord, we thank you that he has come to give us riches and freedom, sight and deliverance. That's what he said to those people that day, and the message is still today the same, Lord. Lord, I just pray that there be some hearing today who will cry out, realizing their condition. And we know you will hear, and we know you will save, because that's why you sent your son. Lord, we pray that you would do your mighty work, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.